Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Frank Reynolds at ABC Space Headquarters in New York. It is July 16th, 1969, and we are all about to witness the fulfillment of that promise that President Kennedy made at Rice University Stadium in Texas on September 12th, 1962. The moon that still has not set in some parts of our world has only a few more days of uh, what you might call untrammeled history. These three men are about to embark on certainly one of history's most glorious adventures. Commander Neil Armstrong, Lunar Module Pilot Buzz Aldrin, and Command Module Pilot Mike Collins. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Anderson. You're listening to episode 213 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, the launch. On July 16, 1969, nearly a million people crowded the Florida highways, byways, and beaches to watch man's departure from the Earth to walk on the moon. 20,000 guests looked on from special vantage points. One person leading a poor people's protest march against the expense of sending man to the moon was so awed that he forgot for a moment what he came to talk about. 3,500 representatives of the news media from most of the western countries and much of the eastern hemisphere, 118 from Japan alone, were there to record the mission in newsprint for readers and to describe the scene for television and radio audiences, numbering as many as one billion viewers. Terminal countdown started at 28 hours before launch at 2100 GMT on July 14, 1969. The evening before launch, inside the Launch Control Center, hundreds of system specialists hovered over their consoles, feeding data up the information pyramid to the controllers in the firing room. Each of these men was intimately familiar with one particular facet of the machine, and in some cases, the man at the helm might be the system designer himself. North American Rockwell had 60 engineers manning the consoles for the S2 stage alone, and... Five miles south in the operations building, another 50 men were connected to the spacecraft. The payload command post had an exact duplicate that was up and running, but unmanned. If some catastrophe befell the main installation, the controllers could move down the hall and immediately pick up where they had left off. In Mission Control, Houston, Glenn Lunny began support of the Apollo 11 countdown 12 hours before the predicted launch to support the CAPE checkout of the command and service module and the booster systems. Back at the CAPE, 
at T minus nine hours, there was a significant increase in activities in the firing room. It was time to fill the tanks. 2,000 tons of liquid hydrogen and oxygen would now be fed into the rocket, beginning with an intricate chill-down process to prepare the pipes and valves for the chill to come. The mobile launcher echoed with the sounds of klaxons and loudspeakers on every deck, ordered all personnel to clear the pad. Though it was still hours before sunup, the roads leading to the island were bumper to bumper, and a steady stream of corporate jets were descending on Patrick Air Base and Orlando Airport. NASA had arranged for helicopters to pick up key people in case they got trapped in traffic, but Von Braun was taking no chances. He was up and dressed by 3 a.m. and headed for the Cape. He reached the control building at exactly 4 a.m. and took an elevator up to the firing room. There, at the center console in management row, was the man who had launched every rocket Von Braun had built over the last three decades, Kurt Debus. They spoke briefly. Debus said the count was running smoothly. Von Braun wished him luck. Then he retired to the glassed-in observation room to get out of the way. It was all very businesslike, but what must have been going through their minds at this instant. Forty years earlier, Von Braun had sketched a spaceship in his high school notebook, and now he could turn around and look through the window and see it out there in the vortex of searchlights, sitting atop the most powerful machine the world had ever known. How many people in all of history have fulfilled such a dream? Crew, astronauts Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins were awakened at 4.15 a.m. this morning, just about three hours ago, after having gone to bed about 9.20 last night, and immediately after a quick medical, uh, had a, the traditional astronaut's breakfast of steak and eggs. There's Buzz Aldrin, the lunar module pilot. We saw Mike Collins a moment ago. Spacecraft Commander Neil Armstrong, who'll be 39 on August 5th, just a few days from now. At 4.15, they woke up the astronauts, and Chief Astronaut Deke Slayton joined them for steak and eggs as NASA artist Paul Callie sketched the scene. Up on the fifth floor, they put on their new fireproof beta cloth spacesuits, dazzling white with an American flag patch on the shoulder. The fishbowl helmets were locked in place, and lugging their oxygen supplies like suitcases, they stepped into the corridor and found it lined with people, hard hats and secretaries, old friends and strangers. The everyday citizens who had been involved in this enterprise had come to see them off. The awed silence was broken by a ripple of applause as they passed, but inside their cocoons, the astronauts heard only the hiss of oxygen. Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins stepped from the building into history amid blinding flashbulbs. Dozens of film and television cameras tracked them as they walked stiff-legged along the roped-off cordon that split the sea of newsmen. This was the shot everyone wanted, either the last picture of these boys alive or the historic equivalent of Columbus weighing anchor in the harbor of Palos. 
in their ungangly suits, they gave their last jerky mechanical waves and boarded the van for the eight-mile ride to the pad. And here they are as they left the, uh, the Manned Space Center, uh, Armstrong, and then I believe it's uh, Collins and then Aldrin, isn't it? That would very likely be the order, yeah. Uh, they left the uh, Manned Space Center there at about 6.30 this morning. Uh, Deke Slayton, the chief astronaut, and one of the Mercury 7 fellows, Wally, uh, uh, climbing in last there in the uh, photo shirt. It was 3 a.m. in Los Angeles, noon in Gabon, midnight in Samoa. But as the white van moved along the service road, it was being watched by the largest television audience in history. That fact alone was a testament to the profound impact of the space program. Only a decade earlier, when the first U.S. satellite, Explorer 1, went up, Von Braun had to wait until the thing arrived over the west coast before he knew for sure it was in orbit. There was no global tracking network. So, at the beginning of the Mercury program, NASA dispatched Hartley Soul, a Langley scientist who had worked on the X-15, to make arrangements for fitting in the electronic gaps in places like Zanzibar and Grand Cayman and Woomera. When Sol began his first circumnavigation of the globe, the only direct communications between the United States and the African continent was a teletype cable rated at 60 words a minute. Three years later, when Wally Sherall began his six-orbit spaceflight, people in 17 countries watched the broadcast live via the new communications satellite, Telstar. And this time... The launch would be telecast to the whole planet. The van is specially equipped, uh, air-conditioned. Normally this trip takes 12 minutes. It's about, uh, about 12 miles uh, along roads that uh, accommodate traffic at 65 miles an hour normally. And they take about 12 minutes to get to the pad. Uh, but this morning it took almost twice that long. Uh, even with all the police escort, they got into quite a little bit of traffic. They did finally arrive at 39A, uh, about uh, just a couple of minutes late. There the van backs up uh, to this cage elevator of the permanent structure and uh, takes them up a couple of floors to the second level. Uh, then out of that cage and across a few feet through a large hatch in the permanent uh, launch structure down a battleship gray corridor. Uh, and a salute, which was new. Hmm. It's kind of fun every once in a while. You see a little tribute to a crew such as that salute. Uh, little things that add up to make uh, this team that we keep talking about, the launch team, very significant. The white van came to a halt beneath the frame of the launch platform, and the pilots clambered out and got in an elevator that took them to the main deck. As they headed for the high-speed elevator at the base of the umbilical tower, Collins had an uneasy feeling. He looked around and realized the place was deserted. No cranes hoisting equipment, no foreman shouting orders, no workmen on the catwalks, only silence. Above them, the white tower, 
six million pounds of high explosives disappeared into the clouds of venting oxygen. After a 30-second ride up the umbilical tower, they stepped out onto the swing arm, the retractable steel bridge crossing the 60-foot gap between the tower and the spacecraft. From 400 feet up, the view through the girders was spectacular. Collins was taken by the contrast. Off the left side of the bridge, he could see the pristine coastline of explorer Ponce de Leon. On the other side, the culmination of everything that had happened since. A few minutes before 7 a.m., Armstrong gripped the bar inside the main hatch and eased his legs into the left-hand couch. Fred Hayes, a member of the backup crew, was already in the cockpit checking the switch lineup. He helped the guys connect their suits to the cockpit umbilicals. Then, with a handshake, he stepped out and the closeout crew sealed the hatch. This time, the command module was flooded, not with pure oxygen, but with a mixture of oxygen and nitrogen. At T-2 hours, just about every road within 20 miles of the Cape was a parking lot. All four lanes of US-1 were at a dead standstill, and people were climbing on top of their cars and setting up tripods. The sky rattled with helicopters moving congressmen and media stars to the wind-whipped dust bowl behind the press grandstand. Perhaps the most famous face in the crowd was neither politician nor astronaut, but a newsman. CBS anchorman Walter Cronkite, the most trusted voice in America, according to a government survey. Cronkite had been following the story since the early days of Mercury. Here from CBS News Apollo headquarters at Kennedy Space Center, correspondent Walter Cronkite. Good morning. It's T-minus one hour, 29 minutes, and 53 seconds, and counting in just an hour and a half. If all goes well, Apollo 11 astronauts Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins are to lift off from pad 39A out there on the voyage man always has dreamed about. Next stop for them, the moon. The astronauts are on board now. They're strapped into their spacecraft atop the Saturn's third stage. They've been there for just about an hour. They're going through the final checkout of all the systems aboard the spacecraft to be sure they're really ready to go. At 9.32 a.m. Eastern Time, that huge 36-story high launch vehicle is scheduled to thunder to life, pushing the astronauts into temporary orbit around the Earth. And two and a half hours later, Another rocket burn will send the spacecraft on its way to the moon. And then on a Sunday afternoon, the landing on the moon. And at 2.20 a.m. Monday, July 21st, a date which will live in history as long as man is on this planet and on the other planets, 38-year-old civilian Neil Alden Armstrong is to become the first human being to touch the moon. Aldrin will follow just 20 minutes later. And over the years to come, Many others are going to walk on the desolate lunar surface. But Armstrong will take that first step in more ways than one. And many things will never be the same again. For in addition to the mission the three astronauts will perform and the experiments they'll undertake, the samples they'll bring back, these men will carry with them many other things. Many things that are not so nearly so easy to describe. There's the spirit of such men as Marco Polo and Columbus and Lindbergh, 
the dreams of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, the vision of Kepler and Galileo, and the skill of Shepard, Glenn, Shira, Gagarin, Titoff, and all the others. They'll carry thoughts of the moon goddess Diana, and uh, I suppose of green cheese. And boring through the vastness, the blackness, and the cold of space, they'll carry the pledge made eight years ago by President Kennedy to put a man on the moon and bring him back safely in this decade. The description of this mission, the fundamental purpose of this mission was put very simply by NASA, remembering those words. The prime purpose of the mission of Apollo 11, to put man on the moon and return him safely. During the planned Apollo 11 journey of just over eight days, that there is time, uh, if only briefly in this busy morning, to think of those three men and the burdens and the hopes that they carry on behalf of all mankind. It's going to be a journey, certainly, for the history books of all of those things that have entered the history books in our generation. This will live the longest. This, it is hoped, successful launch of Apollo 11 and the successful landing on the moon. Cronkite and the other network anchors were working out of tiny glass-walled bungalows on the low dunes south of the viewing area, where the camera angle allowed them to look over their shoulders directly at the launch pad. Walter, good morning. Of the uh, more than 3,000 reporters assigned here, at least a third were on hand before dawn this morning. That is the best indication of all that this is a really big story. Most reporters wouldn't get up early for World War III. The typing you may hear in the background is the sound of reporters for afternoon papers filing their stories, complete with vivid descriptions of the liftoff. The men walking around with their hands in their pockets work for morning papers. They have plenty of time before they must start writing. Not everyone with his hands in his pockets works for a morning paper, of course. A good number of the reporters, publishers, and editors are here. And to a man, the reporters have asked me to say that they are reassured by the presence of their bosses and grateful for their assistance. The American newsmen you see here, of course, are old hands at this and somewhat burdened by the responsibility of getting the rocket off on time. But foreign reporters, many of whom do not speak English, much less understand the space jargon, are having much more fun. The broadcast of Cronkite and the others droned from portable TV sets scattered through the press grandstand, and a cacophony of other reporters murmured into the telephones in dozens of languages. Above all this was the rattle of a hundred typewriters and the bullhorn echo off the loudspeakers of Jack King, the voice of Apollo Launch Control. Behind the giant sloping windows of the control building, firing room one was a glaring white knot of tension. 450 men, most with dry mouths, sweating palms, and knotted stomachs, watched over the stream of signals pouring simultaneously from thousands of sensors within the rocket. Any unexpected fact instantly moved up the electronic hierarchy, and if it was significant, Lights started blinking on the consoles of Management Row. But this morning, as Debus and Patron switched from one communication loop to another, all they heard was a litany of affirmation. The firing room actually faced away from the launch pad. The huge window was at the controller's backs because they did not need the distraction of the real thing. 
Their view of the rocket was projected on the far wall, where four giant screens could show close-up TV images of the pad from a selection of 60 camera angles. At T-43 minutes, Skip Chavin informed the astronauts that the spacecraft's swing arm was partially retracted. Now the bridge from the umbilical tower was being pulled away from the command module and the three pilots were isolated. There was no one within a three and a half mile radius except for the flame-suited rescue crews hunkered down in an armored personnel carrier behind an earth wall half a mile away. This is Apollo Saturn launch control. We're now less than 16 minutes away from the planned liftoff of the Apollo 11 space vehicle. All still going well with the countdown at this time. The astronauts aboard the spacecraft have had a little chance to rest over the last few minutes or so. At least they haven't been uh, busy with procedures with the spacecraft test conductor. In the meantime, we have been uh, performing final checks on the tracking beacons in the instrument unit, which is used as the guidance system during the powered phase of flight. Once we get down to the three minute and 10 second mark in the countdown, we'll go on an automatic sequence. As far as the launch vehicle is concerned, all aspects from there on down will be automatic, run by the ground master computer here in the firing room. This will lead up to the 8.9 minute mark in the countdown when the ignition sequence will begin in those five engines of the first stage, the S1C stage of the Saturn V. At the two-second mark, we'll get uh, information and a signal that all engines are running. And at the zero mark in the countdown, once we get the commit signal, the signal that says that the thrust is proper and acceptable, we then will get a commit and lift off as the hold-down arms release the vehicle. We have some 7.6 million pounds of thrust pushing the vehicle upward, a vehicle that weighs uh, close to six and a half million pounds. We're now at 14 minutes, 30 seconds and counting. This is Kennedy Launch Control. King and Launch Control now. Aldrin have armed their rotational hand controllers, the controllers they use in flight. And we have now gone to the automatic system with the emergency detection system, that system that would uh, cue the astronauts uh, if there's trouble down below with the Saturn V rocket during the powered flight. We're now coming up on the 10 minute mark, 10 minutes away from our planned liftoff. Mark, T minus 10 minutes and counting, T minus 10. We're aiming for our planned liftoff at 32 minutes past the hour. This is Kennedy Launch Control. And uh, let us uh, tell you now some of the things you're going to be seeing here because there is no time in the excitement and in the reports of the launch itself and indeed you can scarcely be heard over the great roar of the great uh, Saturn V engine, the most powerful engine as far as we know that is a series of engines that have ever been used to get man uh, off the surface or to move him anywhere on the surface of the earth for that matter. The Russians, uh, we believe, are developing a rocket larger than this but we have no evidence that they have used it as yet. Well, now, about uh, 40 seconds before launch, uh, the water deluge begins. You'll see some, uh, some evidence of it, perhaps, on your picture. Uh, then at uh, 8 and 9 tenths seconds before the actual liftoff, ignition takes place. That's when those five F-1 engines begin belching forth their million and a half pounds of thrust each. There they are for a total of seven and a half million pounds of thrust with their uh, great fuel load uh, uh, there uh, with the great explosive potential if not controlled exactly through those nozzles. 
And nearly nine seconds after the uh, ignition begins, the hold down arms fall back and uh, the rocket with its uh, full power building up is released to begin its slow climb up toward the skies. At T-minus four minutes, three priests in the VIP grandstand stood up and others around them followed their example. A wave of silence swept through the crowd and across the island and down the highways and the beaches. Four minutes, 15 seconds, the test supervisor now has informed launch vehicle test conductor Norm Carlson, you are go, go for launch. From this time down, uh, Carlson uh, handles the countdown as the launch vehicle uh, begins to build up. We're now hitting the four-minute mark. Four, minute mar four minutes and counting, we are go for Apollo 11. We'll go on an automatic sequence uh, starting at three minutes and seven seconds. The astronaut, the uh, engines that uh, generate that thrust uh, uh, combined horsepower equal to 543 jet fighter planes. Their launch vehicle there weighs as much as the submarine Nautilus. They burn 5,662,000 pounds of fuel, the equivalent of 98 railroad tank cars of it, the capacity of a small town's water tank. Liftoff, the noise reaches 120 decibels and has been compared to 8 million hi-fi sets playing at once. Neil Armstrong reported back when he received the good wishes. Thank you very much. We know it will be a good flight. Firing command coming in now. We are on the automatic sequence. We're approaching the three-minute mark in the count. T-minus three minutes and counting. T-minus three. We are go with all elements of the mission at this time. We're on an automatic sequence as the master computer supervises hundreds of events occurring over these last few minutes. T-minus two minutes, 45 seconds and counting. The members of the launch team here in the control center monitoring a number of what we call red line values. These are tolerances we don't want to go above and below in temperatures and pressures. They're standing by to call out any deviations from our plan. Two minutes, 30 seconds and counting. We'll still go on Apollo 11 at this time. The vehicle starting to pressurize as far as the repellent tanks are concerned, and all is still go as we monitor our status board. Two minutes, 10 seconds and counting. The target for the Apollo 11 astronauts, the moon, at liftoff will be at a distance of 218,096 miles away. We just passed the two-minute mark in the countdown, T-minus one minute, 54 seconds, and counting. Our status board indicates that the oxidizer tanks in the second and third stages now have pressurized. We continue to build up pressure in all three stages uh, here at the last minute uh, to prepare it for liftoff. T-minus one minute, 35 seconds on the Apollo mission, the flight to land the first men on the moon. All indications uh, coming in uh, to the control center at this time indicate we are go. One minute, 25 seconds in the counting. Our status board indicates the third stage completely pressurized. 80-second mark has now been passed. We'll go on full internal power at the 50-second mark in the countdown. Guidance system goes on internal at 17 seconds, leading up to the ignition sequence at 8.9 seconds. We're approaching the 60-second mark on the Apollo 11 mission. T-minus 60 seconds and counting. We pass T-minus 60. 55 seconds and counting. 
Neil Armstrong just reported back. It's been a real smooth countdown. We passed the 50-second mark. Power transfer is complete. We're on internal power with the launch vehicle at this time. 40 seconds away from the Apollo 11 liftoff. You can see the water down there. Stage can now pressurized. 35 seconds and counting. We are still go with Apollo 11. 30 seconds and counting. Astronauts report it feels good. T minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence starts. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. It looks good, Wally. Building shaking. Getting that buffeting we've become used to. What a moment. Man on the way to the moon. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 213 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 11, The Launch. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really did. This episode gave me a real sense of fulfillment. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that as well as download every episode of the podcast on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute the shuttle-level donors. There are three so far this year. Shuttle-level donors give $70 a year. Thank you for your continued support, Shuttle Donors. I had a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. First of all, I want to give credit to Mike Gray, the author of the book Angle of Attack, Harrison Storms and the Race to the Moon. That's where most of the information from this episode came from. Also, I would like to apologize for the buzzing sound on some of those clips. I tried my best to get rid of it, but I was obviously not entirely successful. I do apologize for it. I can't express to you how good it feels to have the Apollo 11 launch behind us. This has been the mission I most wanted to do since the podcast began four and a quarter years ago. Can you believe we are finally on our way to the moon and we're going to land on it this time? I got goosebumps listening to the countdown and the launch. The awe of that moment brought back so many memories. Now, I had some interesting facts that I was originally planning 
to interrupt Jack King's countdown and give you. But I just couldn't do it. I hold that final countdown of Apollo 11 in such reverence, I just could not interrupt it. It felt like I would be interrupting history as it happened. But do not despair. I can read those excerpts from Harrison Stormer's book right now. Excerpts begin. At T minus 40 seconds from Apollo 11 liftoff, all the second stage engines were now pressurized. An electronic signal from the computer in the firing room was confirmed by the computer at the base of the launch platform, and nanoseconds later, six pairs of valves opened and a mist of kerosene and oxygen sprayed into small combustion chambers on the side of each first stage main engine. A spark turned the mist to an inferno that blasted against the rings of turbine blades at the base of the giant propellant pumps. Between them, the five refrigerator-sized fuel pumps were now generating 300,000 horsepower all by themselves. At T-15 seconds, guidance went to internal. One by one, the 20-ton swing arms began pulling away from the rocket as if to prepare to break free of the umbilical tower. 11, 10, 9, ignition sequence start. The igniter fuel valves open and kerosene surged toward the main combustion chambers, fracturing a pair of metal diaphragms and pushing a slug of explosive chemicals ahead of it, sprayed through 3,000 perfect holes in the massive injector plate. The mixture met the oxygen spray and adjacent holes and exploded on contact. Instantly, the temperature in the thrust chamber leaped to 5,000 degrees. Now, it was out of human hands. Almost as one, the men in the firing room swiveled toward the window. Kurt Debus and the others grabbed their binoculars and fixed on the orange smoke billowing from the base of the rocket. And Rocco Patron moved his hand next to the button that would instantly close the control room's steel blast doors if something went wrong on the pad. The six main propellant valves in each engine opened in a mechanical ballet, and a Niagara of liquid oxygen and kerosene began cascading downward in pipes the size of sewer mains. The turbo pumps were now turning at 5,000 RPM, and like a whirlpool draining the sea, they sucked down the propellants with stupendous ferocity and pushed them through the thousands of pinholes in the injector plates. Between them, the five engines were now vaporizing 15 tons of liquid a second. Two, one, zero, all engines running. If every river and stream in the country were harnessed by hydroelectric dams, they would have generated less than half the power now pouring from the main engines and blasting through the main trench like a geyser. As the roiling smoke surged out on either side for a third of a mile, hydraulic rams collapsed the linkages of the four hammerhead clamps at the base of the rocket and they sprang away 
in split-second unison. Liftoff! We have a liftoff! 32 minutes past the hour. End excerpt. Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive a couple donations this week for the podcast. Daniel O. donated at the Apollo level. Thank you, Daniel. And David B. from Tennessee donated at the commercial space level in honor of Elon Musk for SpaceX and in honor of Jeff Bezos for Blue Origin. So on the commercial level, SpaceX is in first place. SpaceX and Blue Origin are the only two commercial level companies that are on the list. We're missing ULA and Orbital ATK as well as many others. So if you'd like to see your company represented here on the donors page, send in a $90 level donation and tell me which company you want to have your name beside of. We did not receive any new pledges on Patreon, so the number is still at 112, with 38 short of the goal of 150 by the end of the year. And our overall donors is at 185, with a goal of reaching 300. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast. It is not too early and it is not too late. Please keep in mind Space Rocket History is entirely listener funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. And also remember, the dreaded dog days of summer are coming. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a $1 donation per month. Sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the homepage and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. Now, for those of you who have already donated for 2017, I certainly appreciate it, and I have uh, several of these Orion Desk Model Kits to give out. Of course, this is the model of the Orion Spaceship Service Module and Solar Arrays. It's made out of cardstock. To assemble it, you just push out the pre-cut parts and fold them together. And I did use some clear scotch tape on one of, on the one I put together. To select a winner, I gave every donor a number, and I input that range in the random number generator and got back the number 9. Donor number 9 is Austin Oatkin. I have a feeling I'm not pronouncing his name correctly, so it is Austin O-E-T-K-I-N. If you would email me, Austin, mike at spacerockethistory.com and give me your address, I will be happy to mail out this Orion desktop model. Have a few more of these models left, so we'll have another drawing next week as well from the 2017 donor group. I was pleased to see the podcast receive two new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past week. I'd like to thank 
uh, Inva Ajim. I'm not saying that one right, I know. I-N-V-A-J-W. And S3N for taking the time and effort to write a very kind review and giving the podcast the all-important five-star rating. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who've already done so. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. We will continue with the flight of Apollo 11 next week. In podcast news, the uh, new commercial space level of donation is now available, as I had mentioned before. So if you work at one of these companies and it's not represented up there on the donation uh, page, so you might want to uh, consider getting a group together and making a donation so you can have your name alongside of SpaceX and Blue Origin. Continuing podcast news, I have another statistic, one we haven't done in a while. These are the top 10 states for May episode downloads. Number one is California. Number two is Texas. Illinois moves up to number three, and Florida drops to number four. And in big news, (laughs) the old North State has made it all the way up to five. Impressive. (laughs) Pennsylvania moves up to sixth place. New York moves up to seventh. Maryland moves up to eight. Colorado moves up to nine. Virginia moves up to 10. Let me give a big old shout out to all the listeners in the top 10 states for May. Now, I have a little bonus content for those of you who have listened all the way to the end of the podcast. Before the launch, Walter Cronkite interviewed the noted science fiction writer, Arthur C. Clarke. I thought you might enjoy this clip. With me here at our CBS News uh, Space Center here at Merritt Island, overlooking the launch site out there, is one of the most distinguished uh, of the science fiction writers, people who uh, have predicted long before uh, the scientists were ready to, uh, to put down the final plan just how we would go to the moon. And This is Arthur C. Clarke, who among his other distinguished bits of uh, science fiction includes uh, 2001, the, uh, the great movie which recently came out. Incidentally, Arthur, I just read that they showed it uh, uh, with great success in Moscow last night yeah. uh, at a film festival. Apparently got great plaudits there, as it has everywhere around the world. Arthur, uh, you first wrote of uh, going to the moon back in the 1930s, and uh, at a time when nobody really dreamed it would come this soon. I don't think even you did, did you? No, I didn't imagine it would be in my lifetime in those days. And how do you feel this morning here at the Cape? Well, of course, very excited, and yet I have a sort of... Well, this is where I came in feeling at the same time. I'm excited, yet um, it's familiar. There's a feeling of familiarity about all this. And now, of course, I'm thinking about the next thing, Mars and beyond. You're already thinking of Mars and beyond? We haven't gotten to the moon yet, Arthur. (laughs) Well, that's the nature of you science uh, fiction writers, I suppose. Uh, Does does this about uh, match what you... the way you thought we would do it? 
As far as the technical details are concerned, yes. This is precisely the way it was imagined. But what we never imagined was the scale, and I might say that the cost and complexity of the enterprise. In fact, if we'd realized just how difficult and complex it would be, we'd probably been pretty discouraged back in the 30s. We thought that we could build a spaceship for a few million dollars. Well, it's cost a few million just to launch it. Of course, there's been a little bit of inflation since then, but uh, I think that the figure they give now for just the launch cost alone is $69 million. That's no equipment. That's just launching. Mm -hmm. But all this money is going to come back many times over in the generations to come. This is part of the best investment the United States has ever made. And in another 10 years, another 20 years, people will be unable to imagine why we ever question this expenditure. How do you see it coming back? Through the space industries of the next generation, industry as well as in commerce are going to move out into space probably before the end of this century. There are many things we'll find we could only do in space. As we found, there are many things on this earth we could only do with, with airplanes and helicopters, you know, which at one time seemed to be of no practical importance. This is going to happen in space. Arthur, would you expect that they'll find any surprises out there? Oh, I'm sure they will. Nature is always more complex and more interesting than we can ever anticipate. And uh, we're going to find some surprises on the moon, not necessarily on this first flight, but I'm sure eventually. I don't know whether we're going to find a large black monolith waiting for us on the moon, though. <laughs> a reference to 2001. Would you like to tell me what that's all about? No, we won't. Well, I don't think we have time. <laughs> Uh, for those of us who have seen 2001, there's a, there's a lot of mystery about, the, about that uh, far-out uh, closing uh, for the picture, uh, which we all liked, but uh, which we still argue in our family about not just what it all means. Maybe before this whole thing is over, Arthur, because I expect to have you sitting beside me many times in the next eight days of the flight of Apollo 11, as we were so delighted to have you in previous flights. Uh, you'll tell me the real secret of the monolith. Okay, that's a promise. Right. Hey, hey, I think I've got something there. All right, hold on, Arthur. We're going to have many more talks about the moon, how we get there, and the future, and uh, your ideas of how we're going to get on even beyond the moon. Jack? Okay, that's about all I have for this week. I hope to have episode 214 up by next Thursday. So long for now.